Epcot Center celebrates human achievements and innovation born from imagination. It is a showplace dedicated to entertain, we hope, with a purpose. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. <laughs> And welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 293 for the week of September 23rd, 2012. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic to wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts, events, my trivia books, CDs, and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. So as we prepare for Epcot's 30th anniversary next week, recently on the show, I've shared some interviews with Disney Imagineers Tony Baxter on show 289 and Jason Grant on show 291. And today, I'm so very excited to bring you my conversation with the Disney Imagineer who really helped start it all, Disney legend Marty Sklar. Since joining the Disney company in 1956, Marty's duties included press and publicity, working at and heading up Walt Disney Imagineering, writing for Walt, and helping open Disney parks around the world. In our conversation, Marty recounts stories of his early days at Disneyland, working closely with Walt, the development, genesis, and opening of Epcot Center, and much, much more. See how you did on last week's Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, and answer this week's challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package, I'll then have some quick announcements about upcoming events, including what we'll be doing for Epcot's 30th, including our annual online Disney charity auction to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America, meets, and so much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. All the years I have been a Disney enthusiast and been covering a Disney, the company, and Walt Disney World, uh, one of the people whose work I have admired most and who I had always wanted to meet and interview uh, has been my next guest. And he is, of course, Marty Sklar, a man who needs no introduction, uh, but I have to tell you, Mr. Sklar, what a, what a true privilege and an honor it is to, to finally get a chance to sit down with you. As long as you don't call me Mr., we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
you know, we're, we're, um, we're unfortunately battling the clock today because we certainly can't cover such a, a storied career in, in a limited amount of time. But I do want to sort of go back a little bit to the beginning and share with us how you go from, you know, being sort of the, 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 the news reporter in school to, you know, working at and for Disneyland and, and obviously Walt Disney. Well, I was quite fortunate, actually. Uh, there was a man by the name of Johnny Jackson who was the executive secretary of the Alumni Association at UCLA, and I had gotten a small scholarship. <laughs> it's kind of laugh, laughing when I think about it today. $50 a, a semester, which was my tuition at UCLA in 1952. Uh, and uh, Mr. Jackson left uh, UCLA and went to work for Disney. And when uh, Walt decided that he wanted to have a tabloid newspaper to be sold on Main Street when Disneyland opened, Johnny rec- recommended me, and I went in for an interview with Card Walker, and who was then the head of marketing, later the CEO of the company. And they hired me to do this, and I was had just finished my junior year and was about to be the editor of the Daily Bruin at UCLA. And, so I had to uh, come up with a concept, and uh, I went to work a month before Disneyland opened, and two weeks later, I had to present the concept to Walt Disney, the Walt Disney. And I was 21 years old, had never worked professionally, and believe me, I was scared as hell. I was going to say, the pressure of not only taking on that kind of responsibility, but it's the Disney company. It's Uncle Walt, the person we'd seen on TV. I can't imagine the pressure and the preparation and, and what that first day when that meeting finally took place was like. Well, the real pressure was on him because this was two weeks before Disneyland opened. And in those days, uh, you know, it was a, it was a mess uh, from a construction standpoint. And, you know, the stories about uh, the, the plumber's strike and he had to decide whether to uh, finish the, the toilets or the or the drinking fountains. That's all true. And uh, it was, you know, the first time of doing that kind of thing. And uh, I never, you know, I was uh, taken aback by the fact that he had time for my little thing. You know, in the big picture, my newspaper didn't mean anything. But finally, you know, I finally figured out why it was important. For Walt, Main Street was a real place, real town. And every town in the 1890s, 1900, had at least one newspaper. A lot of them had more than one. And so having a newspaper was part of the story. And once I got that, you know, this is all about story, right from the beginning, then, uh, you know, it all fell into place for me. But it took me a while to understand that. And did you have any idea, you know, Disneyland was such a new concept, right? The, the idea of a, a theme park like this was such a new concept. Did you have any sense before it opened what it was going to be like, what this was going to eventually represent, or when did that moment finally hit for, for you? Well, it was, a, it was a, 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 a mess right from the beginning because so many things didn't work. And you know, uh, those stories about all the counterfeit tickets and everything, there were... 30,000 people there when they uh, expected 10 and uh, so nobody had a good time and if you go back and look at the media at that time Walt was really criticized and a lot of negative 
And so he, right away, he was, uh, he, he said, we're going to fix all this. And for example, uh, Bob Gurr has told me these stories about uh, the Autopia cars. Not one of them was running at the end of the first day. So they had to figure out all, you know, you're in the business, it's 16 hours a day now in many cases. So you had to figure out ways to design things, ways to build things that are going to last. Uh, but in those days, it was all off the shelf one way or another. And uh, so we, even in the media, which I was a part of, I was in, uh, the division was called the Public Relations Department. And we started from the next week inviting all the media back every night uh, to see Disneyland and see it without all those bodies that were there uh, that mad uh, Black Sunday, as it was called. And so it was quite an education for me, actually, because we had Bob Thomas from the AP and Vernon Scott from UPI and all the editors from the L.A. There, in those days, there were four uh, daily newspapers in L.A., the Times, the Herald, the Examiner, the Mirror, and uh, well, the Herald and the Examiner, two different... Anyway, there were four papers, so there, were, there was a lot of media to, to get back and uh, get them to see the park. Uh, the way Walt really wanted them to see it. So we were busy as heck. So you go from the quote-unquote editor of a fictional Disneyland Main Street newspaper to writing to be sort of the the voice of the Disneyland brand to uh, eventually at some point you are not just writing for Disneyland, but you're writing for Walt, you know, where you're writing speeches. You're helping to try and give a voice to the vision and to the legacy of Walt Disney. How does that come about? And, and again, now you are sort of tasked with uh, giving a voice to a person who is speaking to, you know, generations of people about his company. Well, Walt didn't really make speeches. He made one, I think, that I know of, and that was when he was uh, early in 1966 when he was uh, the, the, the theater owners of America made him the showman of the world, and he did make a speech, and I didn't write it. But I did all the things that related to the park. And it came about very early on when I went back. I finished, I had gone back to school, finished my last year at UCLA, and then came back to, to Disneyland. And uh, very quickly, Walt wanted uh, to uh, communicate to sponsors because so much of what we've done over the years has been as a result of getting sponsors to uh, pay for a lot of the, uh, the attractions and put their name on things, etc. And uh, so Walt wanted a brochure uh, about Disneyland. There wasn't one to take the sponsors. So I did that, and then I did one about Edison Square mm-hmm. because he wanted to actually do a street uh, of 1890 uh, Edison. And, uh, and I did one on, on the Hall of Presidents. Uh, Liberty Street, and uh, of course the the Edison Square later became the Carousel of Progress, and Liberty Street was finally done uh, in the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. But I did those brochures, and then '59 came along, and that was a big opportunity for me because we did a lot of of uh, special publications that inserts in the L.A. Times and other newspapers, and I wrote all of Walt's things for that, and pretty soon he, he uh, 
came to accept uh, uh, me as uh, a ghostwriter, if you will. And we didn't use those words, but but certainly that's what I was. And I wrote all of this, uh, almost everything that came out under his name for uh, souvenir guides or annual reports. Uh, in fact, some of the best writing I did, I think, was for those special editions, one in 59, one in 65 at Disneyland's 10th anniversary and uh, material for Walt. And then uh, the, the one I was really proud of was uh, when we went to Walt Disney to announce Walt Disney World. We did, uh, I did two presentations. One was about the impact of Disneyland on Anaheim and Orange County, California. And the other was called the Disney Image. And uh, this was all about Walt's impact on the world. And I, I still think of that. Um, I mean, I've done so much writing over the years. This was 1965, and I think that's the best thing I ever wrote. I really do. So you found that you wrote better for Walt Disney than you'd wrote for Marty Sklar? <laughs> <laughs> well, after a while, there was nothing to write for Marty Sklar. <laughs> it was all for Walt Disney. And... Uh, uh, he was wonderful because I. the first thing I did was I looked back at things that had been published under his uh, signature and I found them very stilted and not Walt as I got to know Walt. So I really worked at simplifying it and then I'd find things that he said and uh, for example, it, this didn't come across in print, but if it was on, t- on uh, going to be... Uh, uh, t- uh, filmed in those days it was going to be filmed he used the word things in a very interesting way for example he'd say now the pirates are going to sack and burn the town and he said and then we're going to do some interesting things and he'd just kind of throw it away so I said wait a minute if, you, if I wrote that into something for him He's going to make a picture that that is going to be beyond what we're talking about every time. So I started using that word, and you'll find it in different yeah. places uh, quite often. And uh, so I really tried to understand how he wanted to be presented to the public, and it was very it was uh, very straightforward and and very um, understandable by anybody, and not a lot of the highfalutin stuff that had been written in the 30s and, uh, for him. And I didn't like that st- stuff at all. I, I even rewrote some things that were done. For example, there's a great, great co- um, uh, uh, quotation he called the four C's. Curiosity, confidence, uh, I forget what the other two are at the moment, but uh, constancy, and courage, uh, and uh, he explained what those were, and I found it very interesting, but not something I wanted to, to read all the time. So I rewrote it, and I got him to use it. So now it's become the accepted way of what he said, accepted quote. So there were, you know, you 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 don't write it for you about yourself. You're talking you're talking about somebody who's one of the best known people in the world. And you had to think, try to think. I, you know, when, when my father died, I thought, you know what? 
I had, uh, I didn't have to think like my father did, but but when Walt died, I had, I remember, I, I had this thought. I, I said, you know, I had to think like he did. I had to try to think like he did, so I could write the way he thought. So, when Walt passed, obviously, um, you know, the impact was so profound. Um, was the goal for you to try and continue to have the message be spoken as if it was sort of from Walt, or did that message have to sort of change over time and evolve, or just sort of try and keep the legacy of, of how Walt spoke? Well, I tried to keep it. I mean, that was one of the things I really worked hard. In fact, Dick Irvine, who was my boss at Imaginarian, uh, when we started the Florida Project, and I still have this book, um, Dick said, how do we get everybody on the same page? And I said, why don't we put out a, a booklet just for internal use that has a whole bunch of different things about the way Walt thought and the way people wrote about Walt uh, from the outside. And so I put this collection together, probably 16 or 20 different uh, items that way, went way back to something Bill Walsh wrote for, um, which was even before... Disneyland. It was about Disneyland, but it was from that piece that Bill Walsh wrote came the dedication plaque for Disneyland. So I took all those and I put them in a book, and we put it out in uh, October 1967 to everybody at Imagineering to say, look, read this book that'll give you an idea, a, a, a real solid foundation for uh, how the way Walt wanted to be uh, the, the things that Walt wanted to do for the public. And, you know, when I wrote the Epcot film, 1966, which was the last thing he did on film, October of 1966, I have seven pages of notes from meetings with him about that. And uh, and one of them, um, in more than one page, is the, the expression, meet the needs of people, meet the needs of people. He was focused on that. So those are the kinds of things that I tried to pass on as I became more, uh, uh, more and more the creative leader of Imaginary. So especially now with Epcot's 30th coming up in just a couple months, let, let's talk for a minute uh, about Epcot, because obviously Walt's vision and what Epcot is today uh, seem to be two very different sort of concepts. Well, in a way they are, but uh, on the other hand, everything at Walt Disney World was uh, related uh, to that, particularly early on when, you know, we did all kinds of experimentation and energy in uh, growing uh, different things on the project, on the property, and uh, uh, how we handled uh, waste, uh, everything that was done with... uh, under the Epcot Building Code. It was called the Epcot Building Code. And I wrote the preface to it. And there are two particular things in that preface that came right out of that Epcot film about encouraging American industry to uh, participate in, not only participate, but to, to think about new things that would affect uh, how people live and how uh, people uh, enjoy uh, things. And... Uh, so we really tried to keep the Epcot philosophy right from the beginning of Walt Disney World. A lot of things done environmentally, 
etc. And you know, if you go to Walt Disney World today, there's 300,000 people on that property on a peak day between the cast members and the public, about 250,000 public, and that's a whole city. You got you have every uh, kind of uh, uh, need, trans- transportation, food, energy, everything else. I think uh, uh, there's a lot that's been done that is really related to the philosophy that Walt laid laid down. And you know, when we started uh, to figure out how to uh, do that, I mean, it kind of laid dormant for about seven years while we uh, put Walt Disney World together uh, and opened it. But ni- it was 1974, and Card Walker uh, called me and said, okay, what are we going to do about Epcot? And that was the beginning of eight years, eight years. And the first thing we did was was create uh, what we called the Epcot Forums, and we invited people from academia, from, from uh, industry, from uh, just great people that we found in literature and uh, you couldn't Google all these things at that time. <laughs> it would have been a lot easier if you really had to search to find uh, who's doing what around the world. Uh, and we had these meetings and what they uh, what uh, uh, all these people kept saying to us the, that the public doesn't trust what industry tells them. The public doesn't trust what government tells them. But they trust Mickey Mouse. So you people have a role to play. And that's how we try to define so much of what Epcot opened with particularly. So it was less about the creation of the city and and the urban planning, specific issues uh, of a city and the multiple layers of transportation as it was, the spirit of what each of those things represented, the the spirit of, you know, achievement and working together and future technology. Well, I used to tell our staff that uh, what we were doing was creating turn-ons and getting people to want to know more about these subjects so they could be better citizens. And I think a lot of Epcot, particularly when it opened, and still today is that way. And there's certain things that I wish we hadn't uh, lost over time. For example, we had a great uh, teacher center mm-hmm. where you could come and, and learn about different things and take materials back. Uh, and in those days, I mean, if, if we had the communication that you have today, it would be so much easier. But in, in, in those days, we wanted people to know more about different subjects, energy, transportation, etc. So we went, we researched and, and found companies that were doing leading-edge things. And, here, and we made a brochure about each of the subjects, subject that followed the pavilions. And the deal was that if we used your name in it, you had to agree to respond within a week when somebody uh, contacted you with inf- information. And so we had a lot of people around the country and around the world that were participating in this. And I think I actually have some of the brochures, the agriculture brochures, some of the ones that you speak of. And that, as a, as a kid, always fascinated me about Epcot was it was such a very different experience than Magic Kingdom was. It was about this idea of uh, the joy of discovery and learning and new technologies. And, you know, Epcot's obviously evolved and it's changed a lot over the years. As you sort of look back on, on 30 years of Epcot, 
do you think that that's still sort of the message, or, or how do you think it's changed? Well, I think it still is the message, and I think because I know some things that are going on right now that it will that there's another thrust to bring a lot of that uh, more to the fore in, in the future. I think Imagineers are particularly anxious to be able to continue that uh, kind of inspiration that uh, you, you found in the original Epcot. And not that, I mean, it's still a, a fabulous experience. And, and meeting people from around the world, I mean, to say this is a, uh, you know, in Europe now, the, uh, the World Showcase Fellowship students, they still meet once a year. And we always said that we were, uh, our, one of our goals was that someday there was going to be a problem in the world and two leaders of different countries were going to get together and solve the problem because they were friends from hmm. the time they were in the World Showcase. And, uh, you know, I still think uh, Epcot is inspirational, you know, the space uh, things that, we, uh, that are there uh, and, and so many other, uh, the interventions area, which changes all the time and tries to keep up with things that are happening in, uh, that corporations are doing. And, uh, you know, right from the beginning, Walt said, no one company can do this by itself. And so the more uh, companies, the more uh, people from around the world that are involved, um, I think it's, it's, it really makes Epcot what it is. You know, you made an allusion to something about uh, almost, you know, in order to look forward, you almost have to look into the past a little bit. And there almost seems to be... Uh, in the parks and resorts, uh, a renewed sense of nostalgia, whether it's a simple thing like the return of the Tiki Room or the Orange Bird, to maybe even something more on a grander scale, saying, yeah, making sure that we keep an eye on some of those very original philosophies and make sure we carry those forward. Well, guess who that came from? <laughs> Walt <laughs> used to say, I love the nostalgia. <laughs> and I always, you know, when I did a piece for uh, a film that was done about Walt, TV show that was done about him, but, uh, I said, uh, Walt had one foot in the past and one foot in the future because he loved the nostalgia and uh, he he loved the uh, the new things that were being done and that's what motivated him about doing a, an Epcot and that was he he used to go around to the uh, laboratories of all these great companies GE and DuPont and RCA and IBM and and they, when Walt Disney came, they used to trot out all the new things that we're working on. And he said, when can I buy that? When can I have something like that? And they said, well, we don't know if the public is interested. And he, he didn't have any doubt that he could communicate that. And the New York World's Fair was a big piece of that because he showed right there that, that uh, he was the king of uh, that kind of uh, communication and entertainment. And so Epcot really came out of a lot of those uh, those uh, opportunities that he had to go around to see what was going on in the great laboratories. And so to that point, you know, in during your, your tenure uh, with the Disney company, you saw, you know, you saw everything. You saw the opening of Disneyland. You saw the World's Fair, the Florida project of becoming Walt Disney World and Epcot Center and the additional parks and, you know, 11 theme parks around the world, again, you know, you wonder what Walt saw on the horizon. Could he have ever have seen such global 
uh, an exponential growth in a relatively short period of time. Well, you'll have to read my book when it comes out next year. <laughs> uh, Disney Editions is publishing my book uh, probably uh, July or August of 2013. I've got a lot of, of uh, the story uh, in that book. And uh, it's called Dream It, Do It, My Half Century, Creating, uh, creating uh, Disney's Magic Kingdoms. I'm sorry. That's okay. I was. If your ringtone would have been one little spark. I, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So so going back to your book, you know, again, um, we're talking a lot about um, you with Walt and speaking. You know, working so closely with him and, and speaking for and with him. But you know, you personally, in what you've seen um, during that time frame, and then even after uh, you left as a head of, of Imagineering. You were, I believe, still are the the sort of uh, ambassador. Uh, And and I have to tell you, it fascinates me and it thrills me because even just uh, about a month ago, I was there for the opening of Cars Land. And as I was hooting and hollering on on Tomato's Junkyard Jamboree, I look off on the side and there's Marty Sklar. And you you were peering over the fence. And I don't know why that had such a profound impact on me, watching you look at that next step in the evolution of the Disney parks. Yeah, I just walked through from Tower of Terror, and my good fortune was right after that I ran into George Calagridis, who's the president of Disney, and I said, George, you only have one park bench in this long <laughs> distance between these two. You know, you got to keep them on their toes. <laughs> and that's good because you're still bringing, uh, you know, the simple things like where the benches should be, where, you know, a garbage can should be. Well, you know, all those things are important, and, and the, the detail—the the parks are really about detail, uh, story detail, and every other thing. Because if you, if the details are wrong, then you take people out of the story, and out of the time that, that you're, uh, that the and the theme of that particular area. So all those things are are vital. And as I get older, you know, my wife and I, uh, we we like to sit, you know, a lot of times. And that's where the benches are coming from. I, I, that was one of the things I told them about Cars Land. There was no place to sit. And, you know, we take our grandkids, and who are, uh, they're running all over, of course. They're four, <laughs> 14 to 21, and so we don't worry about, about them in, anymore. But we like to sit down and wait for them. And so uh, things like that are important. And uh, as I say, I think... When you, if you cut through everything else, uh, that the parks are about detail, and uh, if the details are wrong, you get taken out of the story, you get taken out of the experience, and uh, so those are important. And so, not to use the the cliched word like immersive experience and interactive experience, when you look sort of from the top down at a Cars Land, at the expansion of Fantasyland, at what. James Cameron is potentially going to bring with Avatar and the land of Pandora and the continued growth overseas. Uh, you know, how do you feel when you see some of those things and sort of that the direction that it's going in terms of story? Oh, I think they're fabulous. Uh, you know, actually, uh, Kevin Rafferty came up with the idea of doing a Cars Land uh, two years before they even started the Cars movie, <laughs> 2004. And it was because Cars was a natural thing for the California car culture. We should have done it earlier, but fortunately cars came along and 
gave a, a really shot in the arm in getting John Lasseter involved. Uh, but it's like my my uh, grandson, uh, 14 years old, said, I said, what do you think, Jake? And he said, it's just like stepping into the movie, you know? And, and, <laughs> and uh, in fact, somebody told me a story. They were walking in, and they saw this little kid, you know, five or six years old, and he said, oh, this must be where they shot the movie. <laughs> and, and thus... That's the greatest that, testament that's right. Absolutely. What a compliment that is. But I think about the people because uh, the talent that was involved in that project. I mean, my good friend, Zoe Torme, who did all the rock work, mm-hmm. I mean, supervised the rock work. That's brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, Zoe, these are the kind of things that, you, that I know from the inside. He studied that from the way the sun was going to hit it at different times of day and, 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 and factored that into his sculpting. And uh, and the way it was lit at night. Right. I mean, the, not only the neon on the street, which is beautiful, but also the way the the mountains are lit up. I mean, they're just it's exquisite, and that is you know somebody really cared, and a lot of people really cared, and that's the, what the Imagineers do. You forget what's on the opposite side of, of that facade. You forget, you know, you forget that there's Denny's, you know, across the street. And is old as he also did, who did the carvings on the Tree of Life, the same? Yeah, and I complained to him. I, <laughs> I said, so my, my, my grandparents on one side, my mother's side, were Hungarian, and Zolt is Hungarian. We, we found him in Paris, and he did Big Thunder in Paris, all the rock work. And so I said, Zolt, where's the Hungarian animal? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, they're not very interesting. <laughs> and I said, come on, so you've got to find something. And <laughs> he did. He found a nondescript animal and, and sculpted it in there. But it, that is brilliant. You know, all, that, all those carvings had to be done right there out of cement. And uh, it just, you know, when you work with world-class people, it... it uh, it's such a pleasure because you don't have to explain everything that has to be done. They know what 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 to do, and uh, all they have to know is what is the story and what do you want to accomplish out of this, and boy, they start running. Well, my feeling is to sort of bring things full circle and wrap up is that I feel that, that now – it's such a great time to be a Disney enthusiast because I think what the company is doing is carrying on that le- legacy of Walt Disney, which is he was the, you know the graduate school of master planning and design. He surrounded himself like the company does now with the people who are the very best at what they do. They understand it. They know the importance of story. They know the importance of the guest experience. Yeah, I like to say that that uh, these were all my kids at one time, you know, and all my kids have grown up and and they've become so professional and so caring and so knowledgeable and you know they a lot of them had the tail end of the John Henches and the Mark Davises and the Claude Coates and Fred Jurgers and all of those Blaine Gibson who taught us you know <laughs> they really did I mean they taught me they were my mentors I was the kid and uh, they they were so giving and uh, and they were fabulous teachers and uh, I think th- this group is like that you know that you take the 
the Joe Rodies and the Tony Baxters and the Tom Fitzgeralds and uh, and uh, Joe Lance Cicero and so many of them. They're really great. Uh, I mean, stars, you know. And uh, if they were in the movie business, uh, they would be uh, carrying them into <laughs> carrying them into the park on the, on their shoulders. You know, they're that good. And uh, I I really appreciate the fact that they have uh, become so uh, professional and they're teachers too they're teaching a, a new generation it, and it's wonderful to see and for us as Disney enthusiasts it's great that we're able to now start hearing from those people hearing their voices, hearing them tell their stories and you you know, continue to come out this event is a perfect example where you get a chance, whether it's here Destination D, the D23 Expo to share those stories and let us sort of get you know, an up close and personal look into uh, your career at the company. I, I can't tell you how excited I am, uh, not just to be sitting here with you today, but for your book when it comes out. Hopefully when it does, we'll get a chance to, uh, to talk more again. And on, again, as a, as a fan first, on behalf of myself and you know, my little kids who, you know, who still enjoy what you and the team over those decades have done, uh, I am so very grateful for um, you know, what you and the company have done to sort of change my family's life. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed this, and I do hope we talk again. Thanks very much. Time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I challenge you to test your knowledge about Walt Disney World history or trivia, maybe some of the random details or sound clips from around the park. And last week, I challenged you to do just that. I played five random sound clips from around the Disney parks, actually the same ones that were at the beginning radio tunes for the show, asked you to simply identify them in order for a chance to win a Disney prize package that included all six of my audio tours of Walt Disney World, my WDW Radio luggage tag, button, and one of this very special Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom cards with Chip and Dale on it. Before I give you the answers, here's last week's clues once again. Welcome to the International Space Training Center. You're here today to train for the greatest adventure in the history of mankind, the exploration of deep space. Did you remember to turn off those robots? Hey there, big fella. Hey, nice hat. <laughs> so, where are you from? It is my job to protect all the animals of this reserve. That is why I ask you, all of you, to please join us in our battle against poaching. Guamacho, Guawajangili. Ladies and gentlemen, Cosmic Ray is proud to present the biggest little star in the galaxy. Direct from Unork City on the planet Zork, put your hands together for... And so the answers are, in order, Mission Space, the old test track, the Festival of the Lion King, it's Warden Wilson Matua from the Kilimanjaro Safari, and of course, Cosmic Ray's Starlight Cafe. So I think this one was relatively easy, right? I think they're going to get more challenging in the future. So always be sure not just to pay attention to what you see, but what you hear as well. 
And from all of the hundreds of correct entries we got, the winner this week is Cindy Fells. So, Cindy, please send me your uh, address. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. Congratulations and thanks to you and everybody who got this week's question right and who played along. If you didn't win last week, that's okay, because here's this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week. And so in honor of Epcot Center's 30th anniversary on October 1st, our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week is just about that park. And your question for this week is this. What was the first future world attraction to be added after the park's opening date? There you go. You have until Sunday, September 30th, to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. Your prize package is going to include not just all six of my audio tours, a WW Radio luggage tag button, but I'm also going to go throw in some special Epcot 30th anniversary merchandise direct from Epcot Center that I'll gather that weekend. So there you go. First attraction added to Future World after the park's opening date. You have until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, September 30th to email your answers to contest at www.radio.com. So good luck. And have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Thanks, of course, to my guest, Marty Sklar. Looking forward to seeing him this weekend at Epcot's 30th anniversary at Walt Disney World. If you are going to be down in Walt Disney World, I hope to have the opportunity to meet you at one of the many events going on that weekend. And if not, there's a great way for you to participate because our annual online Disney charity auction to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America is going to start Friday, September 28th. It's going to run until Sunday, September 30th. We have Disney merchandise, collectibles, one-of-a-kind items, experiences, and lots more. You can visit the blog over at www.radio.com to get a sneak peek at some of the items, and then you can visit www.radio.com slash auction2012 to check out all the blog posts and find out how you can bid on some of these great items and experiences. We're also going to be there on Friday for the start of Food and Wine Festival and our e-ticket event, our evening at the American Adventurers Club. Also on Saturday at 3 p.m. in Epcot is our WW Radio Meet of the Month. We get together every month in Walt Disney World. This month, we're going to be in the outside seating area over at the American Adventure in front of the Liberty Inn. Again, starting at 3 p.m. Anyone and everyone is invited. No need to RSVP. Come alone. Bring the whole family. A lot of fun. Food and wine is going on as well, too. It's a great way for me to get a chance to meet and say hello to you and say thank you for listening to the show. We have lots of giveaways as well, too. Also, a great way for you to meet with other Disney fans and listeners as well. You can find out more about the Meet of the Month and all the other Disney events on our events page over at www.radio.com. I'll be out uh, for the Tower of Terror 10-miler. I'll be there for the pre-race at Disney's Hollywood Studios and at some of the morning races as well. I'll be participating in all the D23 events on Sunday as part of Epcot's 30th. And on Monday, October 1st, Epcot's actual 30th anniversary, I'll be doing a live broadcast from Epcot Center, probably around 10 a.m. over at www.radiolive.com. Stay tuned to Twitter. I'm at Lou Mangiello and Facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello for exact times. We're going to announce the auction winners. We're going to have another big special announcement as well. So please make sure and stay tuned for more about what's happening on that day as well. 
Speaking of live broadcasts, be sure and join us every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern over at www.radiolive.com where we talk about this week's Walt Disney World news in a live interactive format. You can watch me on video and then chat with others in the chat room as well. And if you can't catch it live, that's okay. I put the audio in the iTunes feed and the video both on the blog over at www.radio.com and on our YouTube channel. Please go and buy and subscribe over at youtube.com slash radio. Also stay tuned, have some new videos coming out in the next week or so as well. And joining in the chat on Wednesday nights isn't the only way you can be part of the show. You can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. If you have a question you want answered on the air or to be heard on the show, you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors. As always, Mouse Fan Travel is my official and recommended travel provider. Whether you're coming to Disney World, Disneyland, and Adventures by Disney, or a Disney Cruise Line vacation, they give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, all at no additional cost to you. Great levels of personal service. Visit them over at mousefantravel.com. When you're coming down to Disney World, All-Star Vacation Homes has more than 150 homes, everything from two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom homes. They have their own Private pools, spas, game rooms, multiple master bedrooms. Great way to bring the entire extended family. You can visit them over at allstarvacationhomes.com. As we're getting ready and counting down literally the days and soon the hours to the Food and Wine Festival, a great way to get prepared and a great guide to have with you during the Food and Wine Festival is the Disney Food Blog Mini Guide to the Festival. It's digital, so you can take it with you on your smartphone. It's got a complete schedule of events booth crawls, touring strategies, what's new, all the indexes of where you can find your favorite food, wine, beer, and celebrities as well. And if you use code WDWRADIO at checkout, you can save on it as well. Go to dfbguide.com. And if you can't make it down, whether it's the food and wine or the holidays or just as often as you like, a great way to get some Disney magic delivered to you right at home is through Celebrations Magazine, both in print and on your iPad, Visit them over at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening or share links on Facebook or Pinterest or Google Plus or your favorite Disney discussion forums. And please come by, rate and review the show over in iTunes. I'll put a link in this week's show notes. Very much appreciated. Very, very helpful as well, too. And finally, there's no better time than right now to leave your fears behind, to stay positive, do what you love each and every day, and always, always keep moving forward. I hope you guys have a fantastic week this week. I hope to get a chance to meet so many of you in person for Epcot's 30th anniversary. So until then, see ya. Hey, Lou. This is Heather Jane in Nashville, and I am just calling to say thank you for your podcast. It's always so exciting to listen and hear all about Walt Disney World and favorite things that you like and, and all the food especially. I think that you should get a, uh, a Walt Disney World dating site up there. I need to find someone who loves Disney World as much as me. And I bet there's a bunch of guys out there who are looking for a girl who loves Disney World too. So maybe you should. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. Hello. This is James G. from New Jersey. Just calling to let you know that my wife pointed out that those of us who are going on the cruise are going to need absentee ballots because it falls on the election. So you might want to let everyone know about that. And uh, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say thank you for everything that you do to bring me to the world on a weekly basis. And uh, 
guess I'll see you in November. Take care. You've got a friend.